You're listening to Orange Blaze, a Florida Trail podcast. Yeah, there were a couple of reasons. So I threw hiked in in 2002, and I did it during February and March. I still remember I finished April 1st, uh, 2002. Uh, so I think it was 55 days. That would be 22 miles a day. And I, I have nothing but good things to say about the Florida Trail. And... It is actually one of few long-distance trails I would hike again. That was Eric Schlimmer, a 2002 Florida Trail thru-hiker and creator of the Trans-Adirondack Route in upstate New York. And I'm Misty Ridley-Little, 2010 AT thru-hiker and 2011 FT thru-hiker. I first came across Eric a few months ago via an Instagram post when another account asked if anyone had hiked the Florida Trail. Eric responded that he had done it in the early 2000s, and after a few back and forths, it turned out that the FT had always ranked highly for him, and was on his list of hikes he'd complete again if given the chance. From there, I found out about Eric's extensive outdoor experience in the northeastern U.S., from peak bagging and mountain biking to developing the Trans-Adirondack Route, which, from the sound of it, might be one of the more difficult trails out there. Eric and I chatted about this extensive outdoor background, his Florida Trail through hike, and a handful of books he's published through his own publishing company. I did pick up a couple of the books to prepare for my chat with Eric, and I have been loving the book My Adirondacks. If you're into adventure and nature reads, Eric definitely has a knack for writing and getting you into the story, and it kind of makes me almost want to peek back in the Northeast in the winter. But like I said, almost. <laughs> Uh, note before we begin, I was having severe issues with Skype, so I resorted to using Google Voice to chat with Eric. So we'd had the date scheduled for a few weeks, and I didn't really want to push it back, so the conversation just sounds like we chatted on the phone. Otherwise, it is a great conversation. Oh, and one last thing. I totally blanked on how many people had completed the Florida Trail when I started the podcast a few years ago. We were chatting about it in the podcast, and I dumbly said like around 100, but the number was more like... 250 according to the FTA's website and I know some folks are missing off that list so if you finished in the last five years maybe submit your FT through hike uh, completions to the FTA. All right on to the interview. Um, yeah so I guess how are things over there in Colorado you guys are you in like the Denver area or where are you at? I live in Colorado Springs and I arrived here on November 1st, and it's going well. I tell people no place is perfect, but Colorado's pretty close. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I spent a little bit of time in Denver about 10 years ago. I've been about three times, and it's definitely a state that I could I could live in if, uh, if I enjoyed cold weather more, but I don't. So. <laughs> yeah, and uh, uh, <clears throat> being from upstate New York originally, um, after uh, 35 years of bushwhacking and really harsh winters, I'm really enjoying it out here. I am totally spoiled. <laughs> well, yeah, that was, I guess, my question, too, is because it seemed like you, you loved, uh, you know, the East Coast and the Adirondacks so much that I thought it was interesting that you transitioned out west. So I guess what brought you out there? Just a change of scenery? Well, a couple reasons. Um I had first been to Colorado about nine years ago. It was just a road trip, uh, a hiking trip, climbed a couple 14,000-foot peaks, did some camping in the backcountry, and really enjoyed myself and just regarded it 
as a vacation, but then I was actually invited to Colorado this past summer on a veteran-specific backpacking trip. So Hmm. I got accepted onto this trip and attended it, and I'm staying in a a beautiful hut as part of the 10th Mountain Hut Division system and watching the snow-capped peaks being bathed in the sunset light. And I asked a good question. I asked, why would I not just live where I like to go on vacation? (laughs) It's a very, very fair question. Um, I love the Northeast, and not to sound too cliche, my heart will always be in the Northeast. Um, But, you know, when you hike almost 2,000 mountains in the Northeast and camp out for hundreds of nights, it all kind of starts looking the same. So Colorado's great for me because it's new. It's new geology and new history and new mammals and new birds and new peaks, and it's a nice fresh start. Right. Yeah, I thought about that, too, as I'm reading your books. You're really getting to know, you know, your surroundings in Adirondacks in the Northeast, and I, I wonder that, too, if it just kind of grew a little bit tiresome. I mean, I mean, I'm sure you look back fondly with great memories, and probably now, even even now you're out of the state, uh, you're probably still looking back and thinking, I miss it a little bit. <laughs> but I can imagine, you know, being on 14ers and things like that. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's <clears throat> it's just very nice out here. Um, one of the main draws is the weather. Uh, so, for example, on any given day in Colorado Springs, you have an 82%. 82% chance it's going to be sunny, uh, which yeah. is <laughs> really high. Uh, comparatively, the capital of New York State, Albany, which is kind of in the middle of the state, is 50%. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, once you get up into the Adirondacks, my goodness gracious, maybe it's down to 35 or 40% of the time it's actually sunny. Right, right. Well, I guess maybe just start there. Like, how did you begin to even get interested in, you know, knowing what is in, was in your own backyard growing up um, and wanting to, you know, start peak bagging and explore your own backyard? Uh, you have a pretty, you know, wide background of uh, careers in your life, but, you know, I guess where has all of that taken you? Yeah, I've been really fortunate during the past uh, about 20, 25 years to make a living in the mountains. So worked as a backcountry ranger, Appalachian Trail caretaker, professional trail builder, outdoor educator, and a couple other outdoor-themed jobs. And uh, I tell people when some people occasionally ask me, you know, how do they get into jobs where they can work in the outdoors? And I tell them, you know, if you're passionate enough about it, you'll find a way. It's scrappy work, you know, it's, it's seasonal, uh, at least the work I was doing, and you no know, benefits, and you have to scrounge around. But if you like working in the mountains, uh, that offsets anything that a career might be lacking. Uh, I, I was actually born a city kid. I grew up about an hour north of New York City. And when I was a teenager, my parents moved to the Adirondacks. And that's where it all started, uh, just kind of started hiking after school by myself. I learned how to downhill ski. I lived near a ski center about 20 minutes away. Mountain bikes had just come out. <laughs> and oh, perhaps wow. I'm dating. Yeah, perhaps I'm dating myself. But uh, <laughs> mountain bikes <laughs> had just come out. And I uh, got one of those and started riding and then eventually started racing. 
and um, sometime around the mid 1990s, just really started to get into peak bagging. So that's when I was climbing the 4,000 foot peaks of the Adirondacks, and it was addictive. And as they say, the rest is history. So in the 90s, what was the outdoor culture like in Adirondacks? You know, now in the last 10 years, you know, obviously it's exploded. And, of course, you know, in the last week everybody says, you can still go hike and get outside. And that's where everybody's going. And so we're seeing our trails overwhelmed. But what what's it like in the 90s out in Adirondacks or just anywhere in, you know, the Northeast hiking? You know, I don't. I don't see a a very big difference. There were quite a lot of hikers in the woods in the 1990s. There was a spike around 2000. You also see that with through hikers of the Appalachian Trail. It might might have just been because it was a cool thing to do for the millennial. I'm not mm-hmm. uh, exactly sure. Um, the 90s, uh, the difference between the 90s and now, uh, the biggest difference immediately comes to mind is the gear and just the style of backpacking. So in the 90s in the Adirondacks, you would not be able to find anyone with, uh, let's say, a frameless, uh, lightweight backpack. Uh, no one was sleeping under a tarp. No, was, no one was using a homemade alcohol stove. No one was wearing trail runners. It was that traditional gear setup of a 5,000 cubic inch pack, a four-season, two-person tent, you know, this this white gas or multi-fuel stove that you could smell iron with. It was just complete yeah. <laughs> overkill in hindsight. And uh, that's how I was taught backpacking as an outdoor education student is just bring it all because you might not know what you'll need. And it was that uh, theme of it's better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it. And then, of course, lightweight backpacking came out uh, probably around 2000 in earnest. Mm-hmm. And it was a it was a great transformation. Trail runners, little packs, little uh, homemade beer cans, stuff, stuff like that. And now people are covering more miles. They're leaving less effect on the natural environment. And it was just this transition of going from um, it's cool to wear a really heavy, ridiculously big pack that was turned on its head to say, you know, maybe it says more about the person's talent, actually, the less they can bring. Right. Right. (laughs) So I guess in that aspect, at the same time, I feel like the crowds on the trails, I mean, this is just my visualization as I'm reading your books, uh, that, you know, it's pretty sparse out there on on the trails in general. But maybe this is just my view on some of your, your more remote hikes that, you, that you're that you describing in your book. I guess, has that changed a lot? Is it getting a little bit busier? Well, the use is concentrated. So there are a couple very popular peaks in the Adirondacks. One, of course, the highest peak in the state, Mount Marcy. Everybody wants to go up the highest one. Uh, Cascade Mountain is a, a short hike, maybe three or four miles to the summit, with a 360-degree view and a, a couple other really popular peaks. And folks will 
drive by a trailhead to either of those mountains and see this long line of cars. Maybe they'll take the time to hike the peak. And they're passing scores of people, maybe a 100 people on a really busy weekend. And they equate that with, oh, my God, the Adirondacks are overrun. But being someone who bushwhacks and enjoys the more remote regions of that park, well, I can tell you, there ain't nobody out there. It's just amazing the um, reduction in population from how many people hike on trails and then how many people hike off trail. And probably for a 1,000 people who hike on trail, there's probably 10 that go off trail. So a great example is one of the lists of mountains I climbed in the Northeast was every peak above 3,000 in the Northeast, there are 770 peaks, and 420 don't have any trails. There's just not a lick of anything, totally wild terrain. On those 420 peaks, I saw, I think, six people. Wow. Uh, (laughs) That's a pretty good ratio when you're seeing one person per about every 80 peaks. Right, right. So, you know, people who may be familiar with the Appalachian Trail and, you know, hiking in the White Mountains and maybe even Maine, how is it, how are the Adirondacks similar and different, uh, you know, in, in terrain? I, I get the feeling that, you know, some of the mountains are, are more hills than, than mountains, but um, what if people are wanting to explore this area and add this into their, you know, a region to go hiking in, an alternative to, you know, some of these other trails, what should they expect? Good question. Um, the Adirondacks are quite similar to New England in a couple ways. One, the ecology. So you're going to have a similar forest. You're going to have similar mammals. You even have a similar history when it comes to exploration and logging and stuff like that. Their outward appearance they actually kind of look the same. Um, Vermont is different than a lot of uh, other states in the Northeast where you just have this one long spine of mountains, absolutely beautiful, that goes the whole length of the state. And, of course, the Vermont Long Trail mm-hmm. follows that. Uh, New England, compared to the Adirondacks, also about a similar amount of peaks at certain elevations. So, for example, if you climb the 100 highest peaks in New Hampshire, the lowest peak is 3,500. If you climb the 100 peaks, 100 highest peaks in the Adirondacks, the lowest one, when you know it, is 3,500. So, very similar height and amount of mountains. The biggest difference that people are going to see is the quality of the trail systems. So, I've hiked extensively in New England and actually built trails there, and then hiked a lot in the Adirondacks and worked there as a backcountry ranger. So I'm kind of intimate with the trail systems there. The trail systems in New England are pretty good for the Northeast, and that's because they enjoy federal funding. So you're going to have trails in Green Mountain National Forest and White Mountain National Forest mostly. New York State, it is no secret uh, that the state is broke. And they're beyond broke. They have an extraordinary uh, high amount of debt. And quite frankly, they have more things to spend their money on than trails. Trails are probably pretty much at the bottom of the list, and the yeah. top might be <laughs> homelessness, 
security, law enforcement, infrastructure, bridges, uh, opioid crisis, stuff like that. So New York has uh, a handful of trail workers to cover thousands of miles of trails. Uh, a lot of the trail workers aren't particularly well-schooled in sustainable construction. So what you're going to see are a lot of heavily eroded trails, uh, just quagmires of trails, <laughs> just mud and streams and blowdown and just really messy stuff. I- I've hiked around most of the United States, and I think that trail hiking in the Adirondacks is the toughest trail hiking in the U.S. Hmm. So I guess that brings me to my question is, you know, why did you decide to create the trans uh, Adirondack route? And how, if it's so tough, is it just because of that challenge that you wanted to prove that, you know, it's something hikeable, even though it's so challenging? And yeah, I guess kind of walk me through all of that. Like, how did you come up with the idea and, and how long did it kind of take to lay all that plan out? Well, we have to go back to 2010, and at the time, I was a teacher, and I had the summer off, and I had always wanted to hike across the Adirondack Park, so I was kind of knocking off these lists in the Adirondack Park, and the big challenge remaining was I had never hiked across the park, and no one ever had done that in modern times. Now, during settler times, you would have Native Americans, people retreating from the Revolutionary War. They actually crossed the entire Adirondack Park, just amazing stories. And so I said, well, you know, I I like to um, be the black sheep of the hiking world. I like to do what other people aren't doing. And so, okay, I, I guess I'll just hike across the Adirondack Park. So I started on the northern border of the park, eight miles from Canada. And to make a long story short, I hiked 240 miles in 12 days to the southern border of the park. And how I got from one end to the other is I just pieced together pre-existing routes. So some snowmobile trails, uh, some road walking, standard hiking trails, a couple abandoned paths. And then there were a couple small gaps between these pieces of established routes. So I would have to do maybe a mile of off-trail travel here, a quarter mile there, just to connect those little gaps. So I got to the end, and when I set out on this trip, I really had absolutely no intention of doing anything beyond just going for a hike. I don't know. I had a couple weeks to kill, and that's all <laughs> I did. But then I got to the end, and I found what I had hiked wild a beautiful, challenging, rewarding, pure, wild. It, it's just all these. I didn't really have a bad adjective for this hike. And then I said something that got me to where we are today. I just said, I bet somebody else would hike this thing. So that turns out to be true. So I established and through hiked the route in 2010. The guidebook and map set came out in 2013. And we've had 14 other through hikers so far. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I guess how did you spread the word? I mean, I'm sure you have, you know, a little hiking community, of course, and trail maintainers that you know of, but how did you kind of get the word out or how are you getting the word out other than uh, word of, obviously, word of mouth, right? But is there a trail, 
I mean, it, it seems to be that you're the trans Adirondack route, but is there anybody, you know, like all these other trail groups, like, you know, associations, is, is it anything like that, or is it still pretty bare bones? It's pretty bare bones, and I like it that way. It's me and a small team of about two or three other people. I mostly get the word out. Well, I used to. Now that I live in Colorado, I don't really do too much anymore. But I've done quite a lot of public speaking, uh, giving presentations, multimedia presentations about the trans-Adirondack route. My bachelor's is actually in public speaking, so I really enjoy that. So just mm-hmm. visiting a, a lot of venues, ranging from libraries to universities to hiker events. And then, of course, I'm also a writer, so I've written a handful of magazine articles about the route. And uh, occasionally, you know, somebody will contact me, like um, Gear Junkie just did a uh, article about the Adirondack, uh, Trans-Adirondack route. And they basically said, yeah, we've heard of this thing, and it's just crushing hikers. What is going on up there? <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty tough. You know, we're at a 56 percent uh, through hiker success rate. So we have a, a bunch of different ways to get the word out. Uh, I'm not particularly interested in getting a lot of hikers on it. I mean, if somebody wants to hike it, that's fine. If they don't, they don't. Right now we're getting about uh, three successful through hikers a year and three that don't make it. Okay. So a couple things. Okay. So Did you have to report any of this with any kind of agencies and kind of work with them at all? Or, I mean, it sounds like obviously most of this is established routes. The off-trail travel is probably, like you said, sounds like fairly minimal compared to the rest of the, you know, established routes. Mm -hmm. But is, is there any blazing or is it just mostly following a map? It's following a map. So I wanted to make this, um, a homegrown grassroots type of trail and just keep things as simple as possible. And I knew I could do that by just using what's already out there. So I didn't approach the state of New York and say, hey, let's make this thing official and let's put up trail signs and trail markers. It was more regarded as like an underground route. Like, you would have to hear about it and know about it to even know you're on it. So we have thousands and thousands of hikers each year who are on sections of it. They've probably never even heard of the Trans-Adirondack route. You kind of have to be out there specifically for that. What was very important in picking where this route was going to run across the Adirondack Park was that it needed to be on public land. Because I've heard plenty of stories where there's an easement, and so hikers mm-hmm. or snowmobilers or whoever can pass through that section. The landowner dies, his daughter inherits it, and let's say she doesn't like hikers very much. <laughs> well, now you just lost that ac- uh, that uh, access to it. So out of the 240 miles, uh, 239 and a half are on public <laughs> land. There's a short half-mile section that I simply have a handshake agreement with the landowner, and I make it clear to through hikers, hey, this is a critical link. Don't be camping there, no campfires, no littering. Just pass through and go about your day. Okay. So what is the hang-up for the people who aren't finishing? Is it just overall toughness, or is there a certain section that is just making them quit? 
Right. Uh, it's interesting. There are two particular groups of people who don't do well on the transatlantic route, and they're at uh, opposite ends of the spectrum. One group are beginner hikers. So let's say they've hiked the 135-mile Northville Passage Trail, which is in the Adirondacks. Maybe they've hiked the Long Trail, and granted, the Long Trail is an extremely challenging trail. Mm-hmm. And they'll say, well, you know, I, I, I hiked. 130 miles, or I hiked the long trail, or something like that, and this thing's only 240, doesn't really climb that much, so it, it sounds pretty easy. And then they get into it, and the first obstacle is the fifth highest peak in the state, Whiteface. It's a 3,000-foot climb. It's, it's quite high. And it's that initial climb, the off-trail travel, the wildness of the route, so they're going to be in at least two 40-mile sections, which are just true wilderness. I mean, no resupply points or anything like that. There are actually only two or three resupply points on the whole thing. And they quickly learned that what they thought was going to be easy is not easy at all, especially if they have no experience in off-trail travel. Now, for me, I grew up in the Adirondacks. I've been hiking off-trail for 20, 30 years. It's really not a big deal to me to just bushwhack a mile. I mean, I'll banging out in a half hour and I'm done. Mm -hmm. But even if you have a lot of on-trail experience, boy, traveling off-trail is a steep learning curve. So we have those beginners. But then what's more interesting are the highly experienced hikers who haven't been able to finish a route. So we have three triple crown hikers who couldn't finish it. And of course, yeah, of course, a triple crown hiker, they through hiked or at least section hiked. Uh, the Appalachian Trail, Pacific Crest Trail, and Continental Divide Trail. That's 8,000 miles of walking. Pretty good. Uh, and they take the route too lightly. They may, I'm not sure, they may be saying something to, something to the effect of, I through hiked the Appalachian Trail. This rinky-dink thing is only 240 miles. <laughs> it's going to be a piece of cake. And then again, they get into it. They took it too lightly. And they get in over their heads. Uh, uh, so those are the two groups, but the main theme, and uh, I am not God's gift to the hiking world, but everybody who has failed did not listen to me. I have to be honest. <laughs> uh, when they talk to me and they read the guidebook and they go through the website and they're doing their homework, I have specific pieces of, pieces of advice. So, for example, don't hike it in November. You're going to get snowed out. Don't hike it in April. There's way too much snow still stuck in the high peaks. Probably don't want to hike it in June and July because of the bug season. Go light. Don't bring a lot of stuff. And uh, the hikers who have made it uh, seem to value that advice. Uh, The hikers who didn't make it, I think they kind of wanted to do it on their own, and I can appreciate that. And I think there was some advice given that wasn't necessarily heeded. Right. So it sounds like August, September, October are the better better times of year to, to hike this? That would be great. Uh, May would be wonderful because the black fly season has not started yet. That generally starts in June, and it's pretty bad in July as well. So May would be fabulous. 
And August, September, and October would be great. If I could pick any two-week period of the year to hike it, I would pick the last two weeks of September. Mm, yeah, it sounds like it would be very gorgeous up there at that time of year. Um, oh, so- yeah, it is. I mean, the the hills look like they're on fire. It's just stunning. Yeah. You said, you, I think you said you took 12 days to do this. Is What's the average length for people to be doing this? Well, that's a good question. And prospective through hikers ask me that. And they're often looking for just a straight answer. They say, hey, Eric, how much time do I have to take off of work? Come on. What is this? Two weeks, three weeks? How long is it going to take? It varies so greatly that's difficult to answer. So the fastest through hiker is a wonderful woman who actually now lives in Colorado, but at the time she was living in Quebec. And she through hiked it averaging almost 25 miles a day. Just a, a strong, good hiker. Uh, my through, my first through hike was 22 miles a day. My second one, due to horrible weather, I only did 17 miles a day. So mm-hmm. we have uh, at least a few through hikers doing at least 20 miles a day. Very good. On the other end of the spectrum, I had a uh, two prospective through hikers. They averaged nine miles a day mm. and were not able to finish. Um, mm-hmm. And... Uh, they were triple crown hikers and I think they were kind of, well, I shouldn't say I think I'm being vague. They took it too lightly. Uh, that's what yeah. happened. You know, what's a reasonable pace? You know, if I was really forced to answer the question, um, an experienced hiker, a light pack and they know what they're doing. I don't think it's unreasonable at all to average 16, 17 miles a day. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that sounds, I mean, to me, that sounds completely doable and like a like a, a nice, good hike. But <laughs> paired with the difficulty, I can see that those could be some pretty long days depending on where you're at uh, in the hike. Yeah, and they will vary. So in the far north, like the, the very first section, right where you begin, there's a lack of state land. Or there is state land, but no trail system. And so there's some road walking up there. So, you know, if, if you're going to road walk the very northern section, you could bang out 20 miles a day, no problem. Uh, other sections, you know, getting over a Whiteface Mountain again, um, encountering some bad weather, you could maybe cut that distance in half. You know, it's not uh, – it, it would be difficult to be consistent every day. Right, right. Okay. Um, well, I guess, you know, so you, you put this, this route together and then I guess what kind of propelled you to start writing books? So you said you've written some magazine articles and you're into public speaking. How did you just kind of format all of this together? Because you have a really good set of books and, you know, I'm still, I'm still kind of in the middle of reading them, but, um, you pair like history and, and your, your memoir and all this interesting stuff together. How did all of that form? Well, uh, uh, what a great story because it, it is traced to the Florida Trail. Um, I had through hike the Florida Trail in 2002, and my good friend flew down to the southern terminus to meet me, uh, and she was going to have a little vacation in Florida. So it just worked out great that we met, and we're sitting on the beach 
uh, relaxing. And I was telling her about some of the more interesting moments I had on the Florida Trail. And I said, you know, um, this is very interesting. You know, the people I met and the, and the misadventures and the adventures. And she said, you know what? You should write a book about it. I said, I don't know. That sounds kind of conceited to write a book about myself. And then I was thinking, well, gee, it would be kind of neat to write a guidebook to long-distance trails in the United States that aren't the big three, the Pacific Crest, Continental Divide, and Appalachian Trail. Mm-hmm. So I wrote Through Hiker's Guide to America by uh, the publisher with, with McGraw-Hill. That came out in the mid-2000s. And McGraw-Hill reminded me of my Army recruiter and that is once you sign the paperwork they no longer talk to you it was a very Mm. distant relationship uh i'm being polite and so i said well i don't know i guess i'm a pretty good writer and i can hire an editor and i can hire a typesetter and a graphic designer and so i ended up starting my own publishing company and uh our seventh book will be coming out about a year from now and like you said i like to bounce around from genre to genre. So I have two guidebooks, three place name books, memoir, and a coffee table photo book. The next book is going to be um, the history of Adirondack Settlement, uh, just very, very interesting history, mostly from the late 1700s and early 1800s. Writing is writing is great. It's my favorite thing to do. I find it therapeutic. Uh, I'm a thinking man, so I like to think. <laughs> That's why, uh, especially I'm drawn to place name history. You know, how do all these features in the mountains, uh, get their names? So, uh, writing's great and, uh, probably won't be slowing down for quite a while. No, no, I find all those, everything you've done fascinating. Um, and that you mentioned the place names, the toponyms. Uh, I found that fascinating because, you know, my career, I am a biologist by trade, but I'm particularly focused in mapping for environmental mm-hmm. consultant now. So, yeah. you know, I, I stare at maps all day long and I'm digitizing things. And, and you know, I love looking at, you know, topos and wondering, like, why is this, especially in the South, there's some interesting <laughs> Jim, Jim Crow era kind of waterways out there. <laughs> I'm like, yes. what happened here? I, I don't know if I want to know what happened here. <laughs> um, right. So... You know, I think, you know, I can't wait to dig into that book and all of that, but I find that fascinating and, um, you know, probably one of the nerdier people <laughs> who would be interested in all, in all of that. But, um, yeah. yeah, and all the research that you have to get into, too, I mean, what, other than, are you looking through archives in public libraries or, or things like that? How, how, do you, how does all of that happen? Right. Yes, but first you mentioned southern names, and my favorite name in America is in the south, and that is none other than Chunky Gal Mountain. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> very good name. Chunky Gal Mountain. Yeah, quite uh, color, colorful names in the south. Um, toponym research is a lonely, long road because this is not stuff you just type into Google and you get the answer. I mean, maybe on really popular stuff. I mean, if you type in Mount Marcy into Wikipedia, the highest peak in the yeah, state, right. you'll immediately learn that. But beyond that, this is really obscure history. So the toponym work I've done is exclusively 
in New York. So I have two books dedicated to toponyms. So toponyms being all the natural features in the mountains, the lakes, the ponds, the rivers, the peaks, etc. But then I took the time to look at just place names in general, and that's Albany, the capital city of New York, and I historically decoded that city's 800 street names. So I've done some urban work and work in the wilderness, which is nice just to change it up. My approach with both of those different areas is the same. What I start with usually are maps, and you've worked with maps, and you know that so much information in history can be gleaned from a map with a trained eye. Mm-hmm. So I'll look at maps to perhaps learn when the feature was named so I could look at different editions of the map, and that will help start building a timeline. So let's say there's a Lewis Mountain in the Adirondacks, and I think it's named for the third governor of New York, Morgan Lewis, who was governor in 1805. Well, if the peak is named in 1799, mm-hmm. yeah, probably not going to go with that because Lewis was not a big deal before he was governor. So you can start kind of building these timelines, and it's just very interesting. Looking at the maps, you can see where names have been switched around on maps with really no explanation. And also maps, a lot of features um, on them are actually misspelled. And yeah. so you can look at these names and try to figure out who is this really named for. And in the toponym business, we call that a name corruption, where it's close to the original name, but it's not. So maps reveal quite a bit of history. In an urban area like Albany, and I know similar maps for Boston, for example, they had land ownership maps from way back in the, my goodness, uh, late 1600s uh, all the way up through the 1800s. And these map makers were amazing back then. They would take the time to identify uh, every plot who owned it by their last name. And so you can decode a lot of city street names just by looking at who lived there. Chances are really good. The street is named after somebody who lived there. So once I go through maps, okay, that's so much information I can get from those. Then you got to do the old-fashioned way. You just have to read books. So when I moved to Albany, New York, and then I decided to take on the street name project, I knew nothing, nothing about Albany, and I had grown up in New York State. So I bought every single book of consequence on the city. There are probably about 30 really good history books on Albany. And you read through them, and you're gaining this broad understanding of the history of the city dating back to 1614. Just amazing. Um, But you're also learning about the major players in the city. So the Ten Ikes and the Livingstons and these other big names. And now you're seeing, ah... Where the mansion used to be, that's why it's called Livingston Street. Oh, I see what's going on here. And then you go one street over. Oh, it's named for the daughter who died as an infant. Ah, I see what we're doing here. Hmm. And kind of one street leads to the other. It's quite interesting. It's tougher decoding mountain, or it's tougher decoding names in the mountains because of a lack of written history. So... I mean, if you've got a good 30 or 40 books on Albany, that's that's a goldmine of information. 
the early written accounts of the Adirondacks are mostly in surveyors' field journals. You can get some information from there. And people who have written good history on the Adirondacks. But it, it's tougher in the mountains. I actually enjoy a very high success rate of decoding names uh, somewhere around 90%. But again, in the mountains, uh, you got to dig a little bit deeper. Hmm. Well, that sounds very fascinating. It sounds like you could really, honestly, dedicate, <laughs> you know, an entire graduate degree or a thesis or something to some of the work you've done. And, uh, you know, I'm sure. Do you have a master's degree? Or a PhD? I actually, you don't have a PhD. I actually do. Yeah, I have a, an associate's in wilderness leadership, a bachelor's in public speaking, and a master's in clinical social work, so I'm actually a licensed okay. therapist. Oh, okay, okay. Well, completely different than the subject I was thinking, but um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, somebody. I mean, you've done all enough work to have several masters or PhDs. It sounds like. I'm still yeah. I'm still waiting for that honorary degree. Maybe right. someday. <laughs> Um, well, I'd like to push now to like what you mentioned earlier was the Florida Trail and how I kind of connected with you to begin with because, you know, you are, a, I guess, an early hiker of the Florida Trail back when, you know, not so many people were hiking it. Um, and, you know, that's kind of how we connected. But I'd like to talk to you a little bit about that. And, you know, if you're in the Adirondacks and, uh, how did you decide that, hey, I'm going to come down south and hike, you know, an 1,100-mile trail um, uh, that, you know, is not exactly very popular, and that may be why you did it, because it wasn't very popular at the time. Yeah, there were a couple reasons. So I through-hiked it in 2002, and I did it during February and March. I still remember I finished April 1st, uh, 2002. Uh, so I think it was 55 days. That would be 22 miles a day. And I, I have nothing but good things to say about the Florida Trail. And it is actually one of few long-distance trails I would hike again. So, of course, the Translator on a route, I've done that twice. I'll probably do it a couple more times. Another trail I would hike a second time is the Tahoe Rim Trail. It's just mm-hmm. absolutely stunning. It's not very long. And the third one is the Florida Trail. I had a really good time. Now, it's interesting what brought me down there. I guess there were two reasons. One, by 2002, uh, let's see, I was about uh, 30 years old. And therefore, I did 30 winters in the Northeast. And through my 20s, I'm doing Quite a bit of off-trail travel, a lot of winter camping, uh, snowstorms, ice storms, frigid cold, breaking trail through deep, heavy snow. And I said, well, you know, maybe I do need a vacation from this. Now, at the time, I was pursuing a specific hiking goal, and that was to climb the 100 highest peaks in the Adirondacks during winter. It had never been done before. And I had probably 65, 70 peaks done. So I probably wasn't going to finish that winter, but I was getting pretty close. And there came about two other hikers 
who were pursuing the same goal. And I knew one of them casually. The other one I did not know. And I got word, because it's a very small community of people when you're hiking 100 peaks in winter, it's only, you know, certain personalities that pursue that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. I was told, hey, Eric, these guys are trying to beat you. They want to be first. And I'm not competitive. That's why I quit racing mountain bikes way back in the 1990s. I, I didn't like the very competitive nature of it. I like to compete with myself. Uh, I don't like to compete with others. I don't think the wilderness is a proper venue for competition. I, I just don't think it's a good idea. So I bailed. I was like, this is ridiculous. I'm not racing somebody to try to finish the 100 highs. This is just silliness. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the time, I was a seasonally employed trail builder. And I said, well, I can sit here in the Adirondacks and keep slugging it out with the mountains and have these guys, I guess, hot on my heels. I don't know. I said, no, 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 I'm going to take a vacation. And uh, ended up on the Florida Trail. And uh, it was a, a great experience. I started out on the Western Panhandle, uh, out past Pensacola, and, of course, went across the Panhandle and did that great shot south. And uh, it was just a great time. It was um, That was a banner year for me. I, I finished the Florida Trail, and then that year I also threw hike the Metacomp-Monadnock Trail, the Coos Trail, and did a thousand mile bike ride through Utah. So that was my most productive oh, wow. year ever was 2002. I was a traveling man, as they yeah. say. Uh, and I have, uh, fond memories of my Florida trail through high. Well, so did you do any research beforehand on the Florida trail? I mean, I know trail journals was kind of like the big space to go to at the time and there wasn't exactly a ton of trail journals, uh, back then to read, but, did you contact the Florida Trail Association and get maps? Or, I mean, what was even available back then for thru-hikers? Or did you kind of go blindly? It was pretty close to blindly. Um, I contacted the Florida Trail Association. Uh, I'm presuming through email. I think I used email <laughs> for the first <laughs> time in, in 2001. I was, a, I was a late bloomer with technology usually. I've been that way, so I, I don't know. Somehow I got a hold of them, and I said, yeah, I'm going to through-hike this thing. What do you have? And they said, well, we have a map set. I said, well, how much is it? So I got the map set, and they mailed it to me, and I still remember the map set. It was about 30 maps in this uh, rectangular shape, maybe like, uh, you know, eight inches high, seven inches high by like, mm -hmm. you know, 15 inches wide, kind of like a legal pad mm -hmm. dimensions. And I just looked at them and they had a little chart on the bottom with key points and mile markers. So, you know, at 5.7, there's a road crossing at 10 miles. There's, you know, yeah. a, a lake you're going to pass or whatever. And I just went into those maps and I um, plotted out. 100 mile chunks. So I kind of cut the trail into 13 or 12 100 mile sections. Probably a week later, I was packing my stuff. Oh, wow. I, you know, so nothing, that, that was it. All I had was a map set 
but I'm a map guy. So, you yeah, know, if you right. give me a map set, I can kind of figure it out when I get down there. And um, I remember I took a train uh, from Poughkeepsie, New York, to Pensacola. And it felt like I would have gotten there faster if I just would have walked. So that was <laughs> an epic train ride and ended up at the Pensacola uh, train station at like 1 a.m., 2 a.m. And I'm <laughs> like, oh, now what do I do? I got a cab. Cabby yeah. shows up. He takes me out and drops me off. It's pitch black. It's now like 2.30 a.m. And I kind of am stumbling around, and I'm, I don't know. It's like I'm walking on a beach, and I kind of figure out finally where I am and uh, just started walking east. And when you start walking at 2.30 in the morning, that was probably my longest day. That was probably like a 29, 30-mile day. Yeah. And... um you know, I, I'm not so sure what the trail is like today. When I through-hiked it, there were probably 300 to 350 miles of road walking, mostly on the panhandle when you weren't in the mm-hmm. National Forest. And so I would just kind of walk until dusk and then quick hop off a road and just stealth camp and then get up before dawn. I was hiking until it was basically dark and getting up in the morning at dark and just walking when it was nice and cool and nobody was around. And I keep a very low profile when I'm on these hikes and when I'm camping. And um, I thought it was great. That was my first time hiking in Florida. I had been there on vacation in the past. What struck me was just the beauty of it all. Now, when I tell people that I'm from New York and then in my next breath, I say, yeah, I like hiking all the mountains in New York. They look at me like I have a flower pot on my head. I mean, they they just like, isn't New York just New York City? You know, they don't really understand it. And I think the Florida Trail suffers from a similar corrupted identity. So if you say, I'm hiking in Florida, they think it sounds like an oxymoron because yeah. – People think, oh, I I guess there's what? Epcot and beaches and Fort Lauderdale. And that's kind of (laughs) it. And if you're not going there to get drunk on spring break, I really don't know what you have any business there anyway. (laughs) So when I tell people, because I've always been a proponent of the Florida Trail. I love the idea. I love its history. Florida Trail Association has always been good to me. And... Um, I tell people, yeah, it's beautiful, it's wild, it's well-maintained. They're doing their best to get rid of the road walking. And I remember reading about this before I went to the Florida Trail, and I could not wrap my head around it. So in the Northeast where I'm from, or out here in Colorado, to get a change, a significant change in ecology, you need to climb 1,000, 2,000, maybe 3,000 vertical feet to encounter these different types of forest, which range from the classic hardwood forest all the way up to tundra. On the Florida Trail, you have to travel a vertical foot. (laughs) (laughs) And you have this great diversity, which revolves around just where does the water go? And I was always fascinated 
hiking through these um, cypress swamps and then off in the distance seeing a little pine island which rises just a foot or two above the water and it's just enough to have a totally different ecological system. I find that fascinating. Yeah. That's definitely one of my favorite parts about Florida too is just how much you can travel, you know, a 20-mile section of trail and how different ecosystem how many different ecosystems you can travel in those see in those 20 miles and uh it's definitely one of my favorite aspects of the Florida Trail for sure. Yeah. Now, back in 2002, you know, there's not a whole lot of, you know, you said you're by email. There's no social media. Um, and I don't know. Maybe you had a cell phone. I don't know. What was technology like back then on the trail for keeping in touch with people or or that kind of aspect of things? Well, those were, uh, I guess you could say, my nomad days. So I did not own a cell phone. and I, I was just out there on my own, you know, and I, I probably told family members, I'm going hiking, I'll I'll probably be back in a couple months. And <laughs> that was probably the extent of it. I mean, right. I don't even remember using a payphone. I really don't know why I would ever need to be in touch with anybody on that hike. Now, of course, I I definitely had to do that. Uh, a couple times prior towards the end to coordinate with my friend who was coming down. But other than that, it was a very pure hike. Uh, I was just a guy with a map set and a backpack and some sunscreen. And <laughs> that was about it. Yeah. And then, you know, it, it was nice because I would, um, let's say, get to a road crossing and I'm running low on food or water and there there would be some local fishing or whatever. And you would go over and you'd strike up a conversation and they would, of course, say, what on earth are you doing? And, oh, I'm hiking <laughs> to Florida. Oh, yeah, I think I've heard of that. And then I'd inquire, you know, where where is a grocery store and where can I get water? So, so it was making those nice personal connections along the trail where nowadays I presume that people are using some kind of app on their phone, yeah. which is convenient and I get it. I totally understand why you would want to do that. But it may be isolating you a little bit from the community at large. Right. Well, speaking of, you know, running into, you know, a fisherman or maybe a hunter or somebody like that, what did you, who did you run into? Did you run into any other hikers at all? I did. And this was very, very interesting. So, um, when I through hiked it in 2002, I had, since I really didn't do any homework, I, I had no idea who was hiking this thing. Uh, it could be 50 people a year. It could be two. I knew it had been through hiked decades before I showed up. But other than that, I really wasn't, ex- I didn't know what to expect when it came to other hikers. So I didn't see anybody, any hikers. I didn't see a single hiker until uh, probably about halfway. Um, Mm. Not a day hiker, not an overnight hiker, nobody. And I was like, okay, you know, that's to be expected. And this was very interesting. So 
I think I've looked this up recently. I think in 2002 there were five thru-hikers. So there was myself, I believe there was another gentleman, and then there was a group of three women. And I met the three women, and um, it, it was a surreal encounter because I just was not expecting to see them. So I see these three women, and it was a road walk section. So I see these three women walking north, and I'm walking south, and obviously they're hiking the Florida Trail and uh, because they have these trekking poles and gaiters and boots, and they just kind of look like, they look like hikers who just fell out of New England. I mean, they look, <laughs> right. they look, they just fell off of Mount Washington and landed in Florida. Um, and, and this is just a funny part of the story. So I noticed they're not wearing backpacks, <laughs> which yeah. is kind of regular fare for a backpacker is you wear a backpack. Yeah. Said, okay. And I, I didn't inquire, but they said, oh, yes, we're through hiking the Florida Trail, and I'm so-and-so, and I'm so-and-so, and I'm so-and-so. And I said, okay, very nice to meet you. And I just, you know, went about my business. I just kind of like to do my own thing. I'm cordial, but I just like to do my own hike. And I'm hiking down the road, and I get about a mile later, and there is a young woman sitting on her porch. And, of course, it's Florida, so I wave to her, and she waves to me. And she says, oh, do you know those other hikers? And I said, no, I have never seen them before in my life. I'm going south or going north, but apparently they're hiking the Florida Trail. And she says, oh, do you need some water? Yes, of course I do because I'm in Florida. So she invites me into her house. <laughs> she tells you this quite bizarre story. She says, um, yeah, uh, I really don't know how to proceed. What um, what should I do? And I go, well, what are you talking about? And I look on her porch, and there are three backpacks. And long story short, these three women met this woman at the prior town. And then they hiked out of town, and apparently they knew where she lived. I don't know. that That must have been revealed in the conversation. And they left their backpacks on her porch with a note saying, hey, um, can you shuttle this for us? You know, give us a couple hours and then put them in your car and come and catch up with us. <laughs> That's <laughs> odd. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, Okay. And she's like, I don't know what to do. I mean, they're stuck. The, the packs are here and they're not coming back. So I guess I have to drive and give them to them. And I was like, wow, that is a very, very, look, it is, look, I'll give it to them. That is inventive. That is inventive. Yeah. I, I think it's brilliant, but it was just kind of um, a very odd arrangement for a through hiker. So anyway, that, that was very interesting. Um, the rest of the time, uh, I, I had a, great time in Florida, um, just talking to people. Again, fishermen, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, people uh, people at the grocery store, whatever, because you can't, you can't help but stick out like a sore thumb. You, you know, I mean, I'm obviously a hiker. I've got this big beard and I'm sunburned and I've got this backpack and this ridiculous big sun hat to guard 
spurred me from the sun. And, you know, I'm obviously not a cyclist. I'm not a runner. I'm, I'm something else that they don't see that often. So that was great for me. I'm just a natural people person. And um, it was great to promote the trail just through these casual conversations. Of course, people were very, very kind. Right. Well, what about wildlife? Have you seen bears in Ocala or, or, or you know, bobcats and anything like that? Ah, uh, yes. Very interesting. So um, one of the most interesting wildlife encounters I've ever had was in Florida. And it's just um, talking about it, I get these goosebumps. And this was almost 20 years ago. It was just so cool. So I went on <laughs> another road walk and got to the end of the road walk section. And now I was on the northern tip of um, Lake Okeechobee. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, yeah the big round. Right, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, the big round lake in the middle there. And now I'm going to start working on the levees, uh, walking down the levees, going around uh, either the western or eastern side of the lake. And it's it's pretty dark. It, you you certainly wouldn't be able to read, but you can tell a difference between a backpack and your cooking pot. You know, it's like yeah, yeah. you probably should have your headlamp on, but I like to keep my headlamp off as to not draw attention to myself. And I'm just sitting there on the levee, just sitting Indian style, uh, eating uh, uh, ramen out of my cooking pot, just kind of looking around and enjoying the silence. And I look, and there is a tree stump uh, 15, 20 feet away. And I said, that is so weird. You think you would notice that because there were like no other stumps. And I go back to eating and I look over and the stump is no longer there. (laughs) And look, I was new to Florida, but even I knew that stumps don't move. And I look behind me and 15 feet behind me is a bobcat. (laughs) And he's sitting on the levee, you know, like a house cat would sit, just staring at me. And just totally silent and just checking me out. And I stood up, and it didn't move, and then it just, you know, kind of casually went down off of the levee into the forest. And uh, just what a great interaction. And I think what made it for me was the, the time of the day. Dusk is my favorite time to be in the woods. I love sleeping. I love camping. And so I like that nighttime when everything changes, the, the temperature yeah. changes and the and the different birds call and the certain critters go to bed and certain critters start walking around. So that was just wonderful. Other than that, I saw no mammals of note. Um, I came extremely close to stepping on three water moccasins, <laughs> um, which I had of course, never been around in my life. The first one, it, it was actually very cold. It was below freezing. And I was walking through a swamp out on the panhandle. And I, I went to take a step over a down tree and came 
uh, within a few inches of stepping on a sleeping, coiled water moccasin. He didn't even wake up. Yeah, didn't even wake up. I just stepped over him and then almost stepped on two other ones, just, you know, wrong place at the wrong time. And then the last day, um, so now I'm down into the Everglades. That last day I saw 33 alligators, (laughs) which was (laughs) really cool. And I have heard people... Um, it sounds like they're apprehensive to sound, uh, to hike the Florida Trail because they're saying, oh my God, you know, it's just all snakes and alligators. Well, you know, you, you could say something to that effect about anywhere. I mean, why hike yeah. in New England? There are moose. Right. And why <laughs> hike in the desert southwest? There are coyotes. But, um, you know, I didn't know anything about alligators, obviously. And when I got yeah. down there, I love Alligators, I'm a fan because <laughs> they would just pile up on each other and sleep. That's kind of all they seem to do. They're doing a whole lot of nothing. And so you can just kind of sit sort of near them and watch them. And I just thought they're fascinating. I mean, alligators are fascinating because it looks like they just came out of the era of the dinosaurs. Yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think uh it's only probably, you know, in the deeper canals and those kind of water sources that people are more skittish about, you know, filtering mm. water from. That's where they get worried. And, you know, definitely in Big Cypress, they're not nearly as prevalent. You're not – you're going to be finding snakes, of course, but not mm-hmm. – there's not alligators around every every bend, and that's what people are definitely afraid of. Right. Or they think, you know, you're camping in your tent and you just – you are attacked by an alligator. Right. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't work that way. Right. So when you got to the end, what was your impression? I mean, it sounds like you just, you know, obviously you fell in love with the Florida Trail and, and really enjoyed it, but was there anything, you know, that that came to mind at the end that was just like, you know, you really just loved so much in certain sections or, you know, obviously the roadwalks are kind of rough sometimes, but was there anything of note that you'd like to mention? Well, there wasn't anything specific. Um, Of course, I enjoyed the National Forest the most because they were the wildest sections with nice trail systems and, of course, no road walking. But I remember I got to the end, and I probably said something in effect of, why isn't everybody hiking this? I I just, (laughs) I was like, why why would you not come down and hike the Florida Trail? And it probably was, um, the road walking, which was about somewhere around a third or 25% of the route back then. Um, but I'm sure that's been reduced at, at least a little bit here and there. And yeah. I am, um, so, well, I know it's getting uh, quite a bit of use these days, but it's kind of like, um, I don't want to say it's a secret because people know about it. I think it goes back to that oh, it's Florida, you know? So if you're going to say, well, what what are you and your, you know, what are you and your boyfriend going to do this summer? And you say, oh, we're hiking the Colorado Trail. People probably are jealous. If you say, I'm hiking the Florida Trail, they probably pity you. So (laughs) the the Florida Trail is just wonderful. And um, I think, there are some negative connotations attached to it, which are unjust. Right. 
Well, so you mentioned this trail and the Transite 80K and the Lake Tahoe at the Tahoe Run trails being trails you want to you would rehike someday. Do you think you'll ever rehike the Florida Trail? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, if somebody, if I had a good friend who said, I want to hike the Florida Trail, but I don't want to go alone, would you like to go? I'd probably do that. Um, I'm 46, so I'm, you know, I'm thinking I have another 25, 30 years of hiking left in me. So who knows? A lot can happen over mm-hmm. a few decades. Um, I would certainly enjoy it. You know, to be honest, um, I, I think the trail is uh, 1,300, but it's something like you end up hiking 1,200, somewhere around there. Yeah. That's actually uh, beyond my normal distance. My, my ideal distance is about 200 miles, 250 miles. I do remember on the Florida Trail, I hit mile 700, 800, and I, I was pretty burned out. Uh, mm. With that said, um, 1,200 miles does sound kind of far, um, but who knows? I, I hope to be around and hiking for quite a while, so maybe it'll be a walk down memory lane. Yeah. Well, I would probably, I think I would be afraid because you you basically hiked it in a completely different era. <laughs> I think I would be afraid yeah. of ruining, like, whatever memories. I mean, I'm not saying it's not great now, but... It would definitely be a completely different experience. But you could also do it, you could still do it old school. You wouldn't have to do what everybody else is doing these days. But um, it's definitely, it's still pretty wild, but it's definitely a little busier than it was. So Now, do you happen to know about how many thru-hikers the trail sees each year? Um, you know, there's rough numbers. I haven't seen... Uh, any, what the completions are for this year, but you know there was estimate of thirty to fifty people out there this year, um, okay. and that was that was between you know through hikers and section hikers, and you know obviously not all of them finished. Um, right. But but I'm trying to think. I think I added up when I started this podcast two years ago. I think I'd added up that there weren't from the time it had started in the '60s to now there still hadn't been but like a hundred hikers so oh, it, it, it doesn't seem like there's a ton of people out there but when you you know when you've gone for through hiking you know five to ten people a year to having 30 to 50 it definitely seems a lot <laughs> busier right. even though when you compare it to you know need the big three then um it's definitely not that crowded but sure but for sure. The people wanting to have a quieter experience is definitely a trail to to go on so i agree um, but I thought it was interesting. You mentioned you like to hike, you know, shorter two to, you know, 300 mile trails. Um, what's kind of on the agenda for you now? I mean, I know you're peak bagging and doing things in you know, the 14 years in Colorado, but, um, you know, what are you thinking about the, how long is the Colorado trail? It's about 500. Okay. Well, is that yeah. something that would be on your agenda? Maybe it is. I've got a couple. Uh, specific projects I'm working on. One is uh, reaching the highest point in each of the lower 48 states. Mm. Uh, that's been a great way to see the country. Uh, I've got 40 done. 
So I've only got eight to go. They're mostly in the Pacific Northwest and then Texas. So I don't see any reason why I would not finish that. So I've got 40 out of 48 done. Here in Colorado, I'm doing kind of a miniature version of that. Um, I'm visiting the highest peak in each Colorado county, okay. which is a great way to see a new home. And I've got 15 done. We have uh, 63 counties. I've got 15 of those done. We do have a couple short, long-distance trails out here. There are three. uh, Actually, there are four that pique my interest. We have the 100-mile long rainbow trail, which runs along the rugged Sangre de Cristo Mountains. Just stunning. We have the uh, Florida Trail, of course. That's about 500 miles. There's a very interesting trail. It's quite difficult, uh, and it's called the Guadalupe Ridge Trail, and hmm. that runs through New Mexico and Texas. It's 100 miles long and long sections without water, very rugged terrain. I was thinking about that, though you wouldn't want to do it in the summer. I'll have to see how that no. pans out. Yeah. And the last long-distance hike is only 160 miles. It's kind of like the Trans-Adirondack Route. It's not official. It's called the Collegiate Peaks Loop, and that goes through. Yeah, it's a 170,000-acre Collegiate Peaks wilderness area. So that's nice because it's 160 miles, which is a great distance for me, and it makes a loop, which is great for logistics. You know, there's... There's plenty to do out here. I have read of people who have been hiking out here for a lifetime, and they still haven't gotten to every nook and cranny yet. So I don't think I'm going to run out of things to do. Yeah, it sounds like you have plenty of things that you'll be exploring and seeing, and I'm sure you'll come across uh, something else interesting to write about for sure. I think so, yeah. Well, um, maybe if you want to just kind of wrap up, where could people find, you know, follow you online, the Trans-Adirondack route, um, and just any kind of final thoughts about, you know, all your life and trails and, and, and anything like that? Well, again, I've just been very fortunate. That's the, the word I usually use. I've hiked and mountain biked and skied and snowshoed and camped around most of the United States about half that time getting paid to do so. So it's just been it's been a great life. I'm very fortunate. Met some great people and saw some beautiful parts of the country. So if people want to see what I'm up to or uh, learn more about the Trans Adirondack Route, the Trans Adirondack Route website is simply transadk.com. Very simple and a lot of good articles, a lot of good information about the route there. Probably any question you have will get answered there. Uh, my publishing company is Beachwood Books, so that's just beachwoodbks.com. You can see my seven different books there, soon to be eight, so that's exciting. And uh, I'm actually on Instagram, not once, but twice. So <laughs> my personal page is just US underscore mountain. You'll see all my adventures there. And then, again, we like to keep it simple, the trans Adirondack group. Uh, Instagram page is again just trans ADK, all kinds of fun stuff going on there. Right, perfect. 
Well, thank you so much for uh, being willing to come on the podcast. Hopefully, you know, people will be kind of inspired to hear about your Florida trail hike in the past and hearing it, that kind of perspective. Um, but also maybe somebody will be interested in when, when they can get on trails again and get back uh, out into uh, Adirondacks and explore up there because, you know, as all these other trails get crowded. I know people are looking for other places to hike, and that sounds like something that is worth exploring. Yeah, certainly parallel trails, you know, both offering a, a, a an opportunity to get away from some other hikers and see some new terrain. Big fan of Florida Trail and uh, really glad you're doing this podcast. I think Florida Trail is one of the uh, underused, wonderful resources out there for hikers. So kudos to you. Thank you so much. All right, that's it for this chat with Eric. I'll have the links up in the show notes for where you can find Eric online, where you can purchase his books, and as I said, they're definitely worth checking out. You can find that at orangeblaze.thegardenpathpodcast.com, and I'm on Instagram as orangeblazepodcast and Facebook as official orangeblazepodcast. I hope everyone is healthy out there, and please abide by any local trail laws about closures. I know the big three are closing trails, Florida trails, closing trails, landmanders are closing trails. Some areas are still open. Just, you know, abide safe distances. If they're closed, please get off the trail and follow all that. I know there's some uh, things going around uh, on social media about that. So just, you know, do the right thing. All right. Happy hiking until next time.